This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Today's guest is Gloria Beth Amadeo, and we're going to discuss her book, God's Ex-Girlfriend, a memoir about loving and leaving the evangelical Jesus. Before we get to the interview, though, I do want to apologize for the unannounced hiatus to the feed here. As I shared over on the Post-Evangelical Post, my Substack publication, that has been for a wide array of reasons and will continue for about another week or so. I have a scheduled vacation next week, and then there's some other family and work commitments that are taking the majority of my time at the moment. And I know I've never been the most prolific content creator, but please bear in mind that in addition to this work, writing and podcasting, I do have a full-time job and family obligations, and I'm working on my book. I do want to thank you for listening to this show and for for continuing to listen to the show even when my publication cadence becomes erratic this is just part of the life really of being an independent creator is sometimes things that are beyond our control really interfere with our publishing schedules i do have a whole stack of books that I hope to interview the authors, uh, as well as a whole host of other things that I plan to write on the Post-Evangelical Post, as well as I'm laying the groundwork to start publishing more video, either on TikTok and Instagram or on YouTube, and co-publishing the same feed elsewhere. Um, But I would really love for your assistance if you are able to offer it to help make those things sustainable and real. And I do recognize that asking for uh, asking for subscriptions does sort of invoke the same type of latent memory or, or and perhaps even trauma from church spaces where some white guy is asking for money from you in order to offset that and in order to be in compliance with my own ethics and desires. I have set up a reparative business model through the Post-Evangelical Post, where I donate 25% of net proceeds, so things after, after substack costs and things like that, and processing fees, to two organizations that serve populations that have been harmed by white evangelicalism. Uh, that is why Homework, the anti-racism group that is run by Tori Williams Douglas, as well as the religious... religious excuse me, the Religious Exemption Accountability Project, which is filing a class action suit and representing queer students who experienced trauma while at Christian colleges. Both organizations are are wonderful, and I donate 25% of those net proceeds from those direct subscriptions to those organizations. And you can support this work, and by extension, the work of those two organizations for just $5 a month over at postevangelicalpost.com. That is hosted on Substack. If you're curious why I choose Substack over Patreon, it's just a matter of me also working as a writer, and it it just has a a few more features, and also allows me to walk away from Substack if I ever need to. Patreon actually maintains 
all of the relationships with the customers. And Substack gives me a little more independence as an independent producer. I know this is a longer sort of introduction than I generally do, but I felt it was appropriate um, to take the time and ask for your support if you're able to give it. If you're not able to do that, um, you support on an ongoing basis. You can also purchase merch or leave a PayPal donation. You can find all of this, all of that information over at postevangelicalpost.com slash support. And you can find all the various options of how to support the show, including just leaving a review or letting people know about the show. We are rapidly approaching 1 million lifetime downloads for this show, which I am extremely proud of especially as being an independent producer with no institutional support, no uh, ad spend, none of that. This is uh, something that has been maintained strictly by my my desire to keep it going. And I'm extremely, extremely thankful for that. Gloria Beth and I had a great conversation about her book, and I'm very excited to share it with you. As I mentioned, I do have a uh, planned vacation for next week but hope to be sharing more episodes with you in the near future. One final way that you can support this show is by going over to bookshop.org and purchasing Gloria Best's book from my affiliate page. There will be a direct link to that in the show notes as well as into the post-ed post entry about this episode. And bookshop.org is a wonderful organization that if you like to purchase physical books, it is the it is a wonderful alternative to Amazon. And it, by supporting them, you, you support by extension me. I get a little bit of an affiliate referral bonus if you purchase the book through my link. You can also you can also find the links to every single author that I've talked to on the show and copy two copies of their book on my bookshop.org page. Folks that have appeared on both Exvangelical and Powers and Principalities. Writing authors, um, I'm sorry, interviewing authors has become one of my my favorite things to do on this show and any way that you can directly support them, I am very thankful for. So let's get right, right to this episode with Gloria Beth. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. My guest today is Gloria Beth Amadeo, author of the new book, God's Ex-Girlfriend, a memoir about loving and leaving the evangelical Jesus. Beth, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. I, we've we've sort of known each other through through the internet as as things are these days for several years. And um, I'm very excited, was very excited to read your book and excited to talk to you about it today. Um as you may know, we like to start sort of, I like to start at the start on this show and your book is a memoir. So a lot of times we, you know, this, this show is very much just about people's lives and how they interact with the evangelical church. And yours is a very interesting and compelling story because you came to this weird world of evangelicalism at a, at a different stage in life than, than some folks who may have been raised in evangelicalism. Um, but you were, if you could just talk a little bit about about your upbringing, which I know you start in your book by talking about having been raised Catholic, mm-hmm. um, but then being exposed here and there to evangelicalism along the way. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, my upbringing was like very, I would say, and I, again, I talk about this book, like it was very um, sort of like cafeteria Catholic. Like my mm. parents are like, we're going to take the things we like and we're going to leave the things we don't like, you know, sort of like the evangelicals number one complaint about catholic people was like my <laughs> and my parents They're like you can't pick and choose even though they totally pick and choose but right right the, yeah the, the catholic church was you know the way my parents did it they were just like we pick and choose and we love picking and choose. And it was like a very um and, and also like you know the catholic church that i grew up in also at the time it was a very sort of progressive catholic church like my priest gave communion to gay people like there was like you know i i remember you know not even knowing that that was like an issue i'm pretty sure my priest also i think in the catholic church you're not supposed to give communion to people who've had a divorce unless they've had an annulment and my mm. priest didn't even like follow by that at all like when i was growing up so it was like i, I don't know it was it was Catholicism and that we went to church and it was boring and I didn't have like any fun there, but, um, it was, it, it was still like a pretty like nebulous upbringing, I would say in terms of like spirituality. Um, but as I was growing up also there, you know, wasn't like a very big distinction for me, at least in my understanding of what evangelical Christianity was as compared to what I was like as a Catholic, like to me, it was just all Christian, like everyone's mm -hmm. a Christian and like, we all fall into the same boat. Like we all love the same God or whatever. We all believe in the same Jesus. Like I didn't understand understand that there were levels i didn't understand that whole <laughs> idea of fundamentalism yeah, <laughs> like, yeah and and like the progressive line um so i remember yeah like growing up and being a little girl and having like a friend who was like um she was like i you know believe in god too and i love jesus and like i'm glad you love jesus too because that means we won't go to hell and i was like what, what do you mean people go to hell and you know it's like having her explain that stuff to me and talk about the left behind books and the rapture about how i should really read those left behind books because they're really good and will explain to me what's going to happen to me if i don't like all of that stuff like and i remember being very frightened by all of that like and you know there's a scene in my book where i go to church with her and that's when i'm first like introduced to it and i'm very frightened by all of it like i found evangelicalism as a child when i first started learning about it to just be terrifying like and is one of, and it's really like something that i think now as a adult i look back on and i look at like people who like grew up in it and i feel so sad <laughs> that like it's like what it must have been like to get those messages and then to come home to your parents and have them tell you that like that was true and that like you had to live life in this way mm -hmm. um you know, I, I found it terrifying. And even when I was then an adult teaching children's church, I remember feeling uncomfortable with teaching children about that stuff, like doing mm -hmm. it because I believed it was real, but at the back of my head, like feeling like there's something wrong with this. There's something wrong with telling a child this, like, right. um, you know, and so it's a very, yeah. So, so my upbringing was like, very not evangelical and very sort of opposed to evangelicalism to the point that when I was introduced to it, like I found it strange, but still didn't quite understand that it wasn't that, that, that my Christianity and evangelicalism's Christianity wasn't the same Christianity. And mm -hmm. I didn't know, I didn't mm -hmm. know how to look at evangelicalism. I didn't know how to, how to detect it, how to, how to view fundamentalism. Like no one had given me those tools. Cause I just don't think those tools are like, readily available in our society. I don't think we have tools to like, you know, help people understand like, oh, that's, that's a fundamentalist. 
like, <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, yeah, 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 absolutely. Just because, I mean, people sort of practice their religion in so many various ways. And it's not until you get into sort of a study, like more of a scholarly study of religion that you're going to hear language about things like there being multiple Christianities and multiple mm-hmm. expressions of Christianity. Yeah. And I like the expectation that children should know that is, is unrealistic, right? Yeah. Like, like you and just it's have, really it's all, it's all by circumstance of your birth. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's super, it's super confusing for kids, I think. Like, and mm-hmm. I found it really confusing, like for me as a kid to like, you know, your frontal lobe's not even developed. Like so many parts of your brain aren't developed. And then all of a sudden you have like, friends and teachers and all of these people who are evangelical coming up to you and being like, "Mm, you know, (laughs) your your understanding of Christianity isn't the real Christianity. And you respect these people and you love these people. They're a part of your life. And then having your parents be like, like, I don't know, like those, those juxtapositions, they just did. Yeah. They didn't make any sense to me as a child. And it wasn't until I was a teenager and in my late teens, early twenties that I started to be able to understand them, but like in a Mm -hmm. very different way. Right, right. All that being said, you all like it, it. Also appears that that your household and your your parents were open to various types of spirituality, but they did mm-hmm. have they did draw this distinction between the type of fundamentalism that you would eventually become attracted to mm-hmm. and practice, and their own sort of individual spiritualities that they that, as you said, they sort of would be a pick and choose and 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 bring their own experience to bear. Could you mm-hmm. talk about, about that and how that, that was a presence in the way in which you, you talk about your, your mother, for example, being open and, and having an experience of seeing, seeing a sibling who'd passed and that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. When I was growing up, my mother was very much like, it was really beautiful the way my mom saw like the idea of life after death. And it was actually very comforting to me. Like when I was little, my mom was always like, Um, I've seen people who have died before. I've been with people as they've died. I know it's peaceful. I know it's good. Like death is not a bad thing. Like, you know, it's like, it's a hard thing, but it's not a bad thing. And they're still here. And she was very, she was very adamant about that because when I was growing up, she told me that when she was little, her brother um, had died of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when he was 11 Mm. and she was seven. And I love this story. It's like a ghost story. Like she (laughs) actually said that she, um, right at the time that he died, she saw his spirit walk into her classroom and she was at school and she could completely see through him. Um, And he sat on her her teacher's desk and he mouthed words to her that she couldn't hear, but she could feel in her heart that he was Mm. okay. Um, And then as she was walking home from school that day, I guess her grandmother had gotten her and she was like rushing her home from school because, you know, her, her brother died. And my uncle was apparently following behind her, still see-through, throwing a football up in the air and catching it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, and I, and I remember her telling me about that when I was little and I just, I I found it so comforting and she got a lot of comfort from it too. Um, And so she always told me that like, you know, it's like, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be afraid of death. I know where people go after they die. I know that they're okay. Like, um, and that sort of like, in a way just opened up this whole idea to me about like, 
angels and demons in heaven and like and just like you know the beauties and the glories of heaven being like a real place and of spirits and life after death being like a real thing and she was just so like she was so open to all of it and you know when you're when you're a little kid like you just mirror what your parents do and you mirror what your parents say and so to me in my mind there was like a whole nother world other than the world in front of me like I was always like very I don't know if I would say aware of that, but I was very cognizant of that, like very like in tune with the idea of there being like a spiritual realm. I didn't know the laws of that spiritual realm, but I assumed they were pretty like benevolent, um, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. my mom, like they were very benevolent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So I was very, so, so I grew up in a, in an environment where people, people just kept telling me that like what my mom was saying wasn't true. Like all of these like weird people would come in my life and like really evangelicals now I know would come <laughs> into my life and tell me like that, that, that there were, that there were laws that like, you know, that world, um, abided by that did not like follow my mother's definition, but I believed my mother's definition because she was my mom and she mm-hmm. created the world for me. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's great that you had that you had that sort of expansiveness, mm-hmm. and it's sort of um, what what your book conveys is that that expansiveness. Like you were receptive to it because you're a very imaginative child, and I was, and I was also that sort of kid, especially very young. Like there's mm-hmm. stories of of me, um, for example, like if I was pretending to be Batman or some other character, like I wouldn't respond to to my name i would would have to be i would have to be addressed by the name of whatever character i was you know (laughs) and like and then i um when you're when you were writing about the sort of worlds that you would that that you would create or the the sort of fantastical elements that you would read in into your experience like that that was very reminiscent for me and i and even as someone who grew up within a form of evangelicalism and in the midwest instead of instead of the east coast um that that was very resonant and i was wondering just um if if that sort of that sort of openness and was it was a way in which later on in your life was one of the first connecting points to this evangelical message yep 100% like i would say that my open imagination and then also my my willingness to sort of like incorporate different things into my imagination but also um like my my desire to like find community and belonging and feeling sort of like rejected by the world around me in a lot of ways because I I just didn't feel like I was like everyone else like necessarily like I think that all of those things in combination like definitely made me made me sort of like ripe for the picking in certain (laughs) ways but like but but the imaginative element of it like and like honestly like I I just wasn't like very like I I was closed to certain things and I was open to other things like and it was Mm. the combination of what I was closed to and what I was opened to that really made me like particularly vulnerable as well as like the vulnerabilities of like traumas that I had like in my own childhood and the needs that I had at that moment you know like I was very like closed to the idea of 
drugs and drinking and like, you know, and sex. Like I was very like afraid of all of those things because those things to me communicated a lack of control and like the inability to have a safe adult life. Like that's what Mm. I felt like. I saw we also, you know, came of age at a time where it was very much like I remember like the D.A.R.E. program was in schools and everything was just like, you know, drugs and drinking is like the devil, like no (laughs) marijuana ever. Like you smoke weed, you die. Just like, you know, all of that (laughs) thing was just like all around. And like, how how does a young brain handle that? Like to me, my young brain handled that by being like, I can't be a safe adult who can function in the world if I do any of that stuff. And then all of a sudden I get thrown into college and everyone's like, oh, in college, all you're going to do is drugs and drink and have sex and join a sorority. And it's all going to. So to me, it was just like college is unsafe, unsafe. It was just like red alarms going off in my head about college. Like, but then on. So all of that stuff was bad. But then on the other hand, like I did have, again, this expansive imagination and this like curiosity about the spiritual world. Like when I was in high school, I dabbled in Wicca, like with one of my friends, like, you know, I walked around a circle and chanted earth, air, fire, water. And I, I was very like, interested in the idea of paganism and like, you know, of there being like different spiritual forces. So I was like, kind of like what evangelicalism definitely called like a seeker. Like when I look at like the crew methodology in terms of converting people, like Mm -hmm. they sort of like, you know, place people on a spiritual scale. And I was on the spiritual scale of like a seeker, which meant that I was like, very much somebody that they wanted to go after. They wanted to, they saw that I was open to different spiritual ideas and they wanted to influence those beliefs and guide them into like a certain, you know, vein. So they kind of like hit the jackpot with me because I was so <laughs> I was so afraid of like all of the things that they also were afraid of. And they also like barred people from to control them. But for me, I was like, I want control in my life. I didn't necessarily want to be controlled, but I wanted to be given control. Um, And that paired with the idea that they believed in a spiritual realm and they had a framework for that, like ended up being like very attractive to me. Yeah. So talk about that a little more, because that that is the the uh, that is the focus of your book is your experience within uh, within Campus Crusade, now called Crew. It's one of many or church or parachurch organizations that's gone through name changes to avoid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so so Campus Crusade used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ, and now it's called just called Crew. Another one is like YWAM, which yep. I think a lot of them may say doesn't really mean anything Um, like that's the official rule if i'm if i'm thinking of the right organization um there's there's one or two more that that have had similar similar rebranding efforts Mm -hmm. um which speaks to the sort of marketing methodology that a lot of this has Um, sophisticated (laughs) absolutely yes absolutely absolutely there's a this is a sidebar but there's a wonderful book um called guaranteed pure it's a history of um, of Moody Bible Institute, and it's all about mm. the establishment of corporate evangelicals. And, oh my goodness, that's fascinating! And I would love um, to read that. Yeah, it's by Timothy Gloge. I'm, I'm working, I'm working on my own book right now, and I'm, I'm leaning a lot on that that book for for some parts of establishing the framework because it's mm-hmm. because I and I'm I'm allowing this little bit of sidebar um, <laughs> tangent because I know that you're in the marketing area. That's also mm-hmm. been part of my professional career too. Yeah. So it's really, really fascinating. Um, and I would 
totally recommend it because it like there these these things have been established for way longer than we than we think. Yeah, um, yeah. So getting back to your <laughs> getting back to your to to your text, um, you you talked about how you were going to a secular school, but then Campus Crusade had a presence. I mean, I'm, I'm betraying my own experience. I went to a Christian school, so everything mm-hmm. was like crew for me um, yeah. in, in a way, <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> but, but you, you were at a, at a, at a, you know, a secular school with air quotes um, mm-hmm. with this crew presence. Um, and then you, you really delve very deeply into this a relationship you have with a fellow student named Kate. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, um, what was your initial introduction and then what got got you very enthused you know we would say on fire for god you know yeah. type. <laughs> so on fire man oh my yeah. goodness yeah, so the so so my initial introduction to crew actually was not through kate it was through a girl who i found to be far creepier her, oh, name was, her name was Tara, but she love bombed me, and I liked that. I found love bombing to be very nice, like because mm-hmm. I was terrified that no one would ever love me. So, um, I was, um, I was at a, I was in like freshman orientation, and there were a bunch of like sort of like staff members who were also fellow students who were older than me in freshman orientation. And they decided to do a play a game of never have I ever. And they were like, never have I ever had sex in a hot tub. And everyone was like raising their hands because apparently they all had like, and I was just <laughs> like, Oh my goodness, I'm so scared. And I like, basically I just couldn't handle like, it just all felt like so out of control for me. And I just felt like I was just going to be like thrown into this world of like drug based iniquity. Like, I was just so terrified. Like, so I ended up like going downstairs in the student center, like telling some lady that I was scared and like one of like the teachers or whatever. And then this woman, Tara was like listening, like, and she was actually the president of campus crusade of the campus crusade chapter on my campus, which had only had been started by her. So the thing about campus crusade and the navigators and InterVarsity and all of these like organizations, like, on college campuses that is really fascinating and disturbing is that like they don't like naturally just exist on college campuses college campuses don't invite them on these are like adult non-student staff members who find their ways onto campuses and then start converting students or start identifying students who are already like believers like who are already evangelical and then convincing them to start chapters so it's kind of gross like it's not like it's not the students ideas generally like it is like a literal infiltration of this like evangelical corporation like wandering onto a college campus and then like getting like themselves established on it um and so that had happened with the crew chapter on my college campus maybe a year or two before i arrived so tara was in like absolute ultimate recruitment mode like she wanted to get this group like charged up she wanted to get it big and then she heard me like being scared over there and she was like this girl is perfect for like my group like this girl is is everything that we want this girl is is right for the picking and so she was like hey I'm part of a group that doesn't smoke, drink, or have sex. And I was like, sign me up, which is just <laughs> not what other college students think at all, or at least what I think they think. But for me, like, and you know, honestly, maybe for like other kids, like, you know, who are like 
looking for like a certain amount of control or who are like kind of feeling like they're not ready for all of those things that just feel so like adult, like, or even just like, they don't want to handle all that stuff. Like other straight edge kids, like that sounded attractive to me. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Because I, there are kids that don't want to do that. Right. There are, yeah, there are, yeah. there are kids again, like, yeah, again, growing up the whole straight edge movement, like there yeah. were like other yeah. kids who like, didn't want to like, you know, yeah yeah who who didn't want to to do that stuff so and and it might feel difficult for them to find other people who feel the same way and for me she tells me that it's a christian group that they don't smoke drink or have sex and i was like okay well i'm christian because i grew up catholic so this goes back to the conversation we had previously about not being able to distinguish fundamentalism Mm -hmm. naturally in our culture from anything else like from any other version or form of Christianity. Uh, and I don't want to do these things. So sign me up. So I showed up at like the first meeting. And in that meeting was a girl that I had met previously at a during like another class of mine. And her name was Kate. Now, Kate looked to me like the coolest, most like rational, most um like calm and collected and interesting girl that I had seen at, at college so far. She had like, she almost sort of like exuded a confidence in how just like natural she was like in, in every way, shape and form. Like I found her to be like, I like found myself to feel like simultaneously jealous of her, like just in viewing her as a human being and absolutely fascinating. And she was there at this meeting. Now, like Tara had been there, had, you know, brought me in earlier and she was just like, girl, I love you. You're so cool. You're so great. And she didn't know me. And I found that to be a little weird, but also I was like, I mean, at least someone loves me. So I guess I'll hang out with her. (laughs) Um, And then like, but then all of a sudden Kate is there, this girl who like, seems like the coolest person I've met so far. And I don't even know how to handle how cool she is. And she's there at this like Christian meeting and she's like reading from the Bible. And I was just like, that's interesting. I want to know more about her. I want to know more about what she thinks. I want to know more about what she believes. And her and I turned out like had a lot in common. Like we liked the same movies. Like she liked Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia. Like, and she loved Dickens. Like she loved all of the, the weird little things that I loved. Um, and we ended up just becoming like really, really good friends just based off of our interests. Like our, her like weirdness sort of like matched my weirdness, but the difference is, is that she had a confidence that I had never had, like ever had, like, and I wanted that confidence. And according to her, that confidence was all because of God. So that's what, (laughs) that's what sort of like led me down the slippery slope as I got. <laughs> yes. Yes. White evangelicalism is the slippery slope, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then through, so, I mean, I think this is a, this is, this is the, the thing ab- about these groups, right. Is they, they give you a ready-made belonging. It's, it's very mm-hmm. similar to the way a lot of evangelical youth groups function. Yeah. You've, mm-hmm. You're given this level of safety, but a mm-hmm. degree of autonomy. But how, once you started exploring this space and 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 this particular identity, like, um, when did you start to to really be able to sense the boundaries that were there, like between you and the the greater like student population? Um, mm-hmm. And was it something that you felt you could do, or did was your sort of you know, worldview just 
sort of rewritten and then you mm-hmm. you saw everything as um you know as as a mission field and i'm not saying it has to be either or it might yeah. so so i'm curious about your response yeah my worldview was on the surface rewritten i would say like pretty mm-hmm. much like you know if you think of if we if we do a Shrek analogy and like a human being is an onion, like all the outer <laughs> layers yeah. were, were rewritten, but the core wasn't quite. And the core is what I struggled with, like for the rest of my time in evangelicalism. Like, mm-hmm. um, so like I learned and, and the other thing about that I think is important about this conversation, important about the idea of these like y- these again, youth college youth groups, these groups that exist on college campuses, and even just like anyone in the way evangelical converts anyone of any age, is that conversion does not happen generally like in a split second. Like evangelicals walking up to people on beaches with track booklets or going up to people and knocking on doors, like that's really not in my opinion, that's not about converting anyone. That's just about like getting the people who are trying to do the conversion more deeply ingrained in your group because they're humiliating themselves for the cause. And humiliation is a really good way, I think, of like getting people to like stay in your group. Mm-hmm. So, but for me, the course of my conversion like happened like over a year. Um, and it was like Kate sort of like very like, subtly planting a lot of different seeds in my mind and getting me to think about things in different ways and shaming me for certain thoughts. You know, it's like, and I really, again, she was so confident. She was so interesting. She was so cool. I wanted to be like her when I disagreed with her, like it would be like pretty vehement. Like it would be a really like, you know, strong disagreement. And I didn't walk away feeling good from it. I walked away questioning myself, like, because she was so sure. And I was so unsure of myself. Like, Um, And so like it, it took like a year for me to get that point where to get to the point where I accepted Jesus Christ, like as Lord and savior with her, like, and in a lot of ways, like I did it because I wanted to be like her. And I sort of over a year sussed out that the only chance I had of being as confident as her and like having like sort of the stable adulthood that I could sense that she was going to have was if I bought into this and also just like, I loved her. Like I had a huge crush on her. Like I wanted her to, I wanted her to love me the most, like out of everybody that, that, that she was around. And I knew that if I did this, I, I would please her in that way. And so I accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and savior. And then she started shopping me around to people to confirm my conversion and also to get me even deeper in. So this is what's so sophisticated about like organizations like crew and also like beyond all of the marketing, which is very sophisticated in itself. They are also a well-oiled machine once you get into it. So she brings me in and then she shops me around to all of the people. She brings me to a pastor. She brings me to a crew staff member and they start asking me questions to confirm that the Holy spirit has taken over my heart. And I now am a true believer. And I believe the number one thing, which is that Jesus Christ is Lord and savior. And the only way you get to heaven is by believing in him. No other religions, no other God, no other thought processes, no agnosticism, no cafeteria, Catholicism, no cafeteria, anything, only that. Like, Mm -hmm. and I remember having like one such conversation with a crew staff member and I wasn't actually really ready to give in to that idea. And it was because of my mother. Like it was because of the idea of my mother seeing her brother when he was a spirit 
person like after he died like and still believing her about that like and still like not being ready to say if my mother doesn't believe this about life after death she's gonna go to hell like I just wasn't ready to do it and that crew staff member laid that law down with me and she made it very final and she was like no your mother is not going to heaven if she does not believe in this belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is the only way to heaven that is it And that was, you know, that crew staff member drew a boundary. And that boundary was between like me and like the the life that I had lived before and then Kate and everything about the life that I wanted with her, like as her best friend, as her favorite person and this entire community that she was introducing me to, like Mm -hmm. this built in beautiful community of like a promising, thriving adulthood, like what was I going to do? Like, I wasn't going to sit there and be like, yeah, I'll go take like my like destitute life over here that I'm just perpetually confused about and terrified of like, or be in the safety of this community with the most interesting, beautiful, confident person I've ever met in my life. You know, like, I think I chose like what any person it, it, at my, it, it, with at my mental space at that point in time mm-hmm. and my experience level would have chosen, um, which is sad. Like it's really sad because in some ways I look at, I look at it and I'm like, would I have chosen it if I could have really seen what was happening? If I had had the education that I've had now about groups like crew and about evangelical Christianity. And if I had been like, you know, told about the difference between fundamentalism and the rest of the rest of Christianity, if I could have really understood what I was looking at, mm-hmm. would I have chosen it? So right. I wish right. I wouldn't, but like, <laughs> Yeah, but at at the same time you were you you had the information you had and yeah. I think the fact that you have the fact that you have poured so much in into this memoir of revealing and 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 thinking through some of the things that that you that you did while you were in evangelicalism including witnessing to your family and like mm-hmm. these types of things that I think a lot of us who've passed through these moments of honor in our own lives can really, <laughs> really relate to. I, I know I said some cringe things mm-hmm. um, and had like, um, I was the most fundamentalist of everybody in my family at different points. Yeah. And I mean that those are parts of the story <laughs> and yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you, you kept them in because I mean, yeah. that's um, because that's part of, that's that's part of it is is being able being able to see that from the other side and and reckon but also recognizing where you were because yeah there there does seem to be this you know this this pull between um you know really desiring that community really desiring that acceptance um and then but then you know anytime you have these doubts about the sorts of standards that you feel are unfair or the 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 conditions the terms and conditions of it all like um that's when that's that's when this whole deconstruction type thing that that people are that people have been talking about with with this new link with this recent language um yeah it's so good to have a word for it (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely so um before we get to that sort of stage of things, I mean, you, 
you you were absolutely all in. You share, um, you know, your some of the ways you were writing in journals and and using that very evangelical practice, and then mm-hmm. then started witnessing and, and trying to bring your your family members to evangelical churches. Um, for that period of of your time, especially your college years, before you move on to grad school and beyond that, um, was had that motivation by then sort of taken over of it, of it becoming this, you know, spiritual warfare type life or death salvation at all costs. Mm-hmm. Um, did that, did that feel like the dominating motivation for you during your, um, during your college years? Yeah. Yeah. Um, during my college years, I would say yes, because of the fact that like literally everything it w- what a pressure to feel in your life absolutely like, absolutely like an immense pressure to feel on your shoulders that like if you do not witness to your family members they will suffer for eternity in hell they will not go to heaven with you like the people that you love most in the world and everybody that you love afterwards who does not believe in Jesus Christ as lord and savior like that was probably the crux of my depression like the crux of my anxiety but it was also a driving force it was a it was a mission like they call it missional like for a Mm -hmm. reason like it really is a mission it's a reason to wake up in the morning it's a reason to do anything that you're doing and for me because honestly I felt so jealous of people who grew up in evangelical families when I was evangelical because at least like they knew that their family members were going to heaven like at least they didn't have to live every Every day with the burden that I felt like I had to live with, which Calvinism, like a separate practice, told me that I didn't have to live with the burden because it was God who would who would save them ultimately. And I just needed to be the witness. But even if I needed to do anything, that was a burden, you know, and then the idea that like God might not save them, that they might not be the elect, that they might not be chosen was absolutely terrifying and made me hate God. Like, so Mm -hmm. it was just like, you know, it's like, it was like a dominating, like witnessing to them and trying to get them to see the world from my new, like evangelical perspective was absolutely a dominating force in my life throughout my college years and beyond. And it was also the force that made me not know how to live in this world, like as much anymore. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was a very, it was painful it was awful. It was pretty torturous. And I would say when I was finally able to let go of it, it was the greatest, it was the greatest relief I've ever felt still to this day. Hmm. Hmm. I'm going to say with that for a second. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and this, this is going to be a, this is definitely going to be a, and a different direction. So not, not building off of your, your last comment, but a, a little bit of a different direction. Um, one of the things that I, that I was really, um, was really interested by in your, and I, in, in your text was that much of your, your crew experience that you talk about is, is by and large, a lot of women in leadership. And you talk about how that was just because there were no men that were, were part of it. And, Um, that even though like you believed in complementarian theology, there was no 
there was no way to fun to functionally practice it because guys weren't around <laughs> for <Yeah. laughs> by and large. Um, at the same time, though, the your experience, like other women, were the enforcers of purity culture, of complementarianism, mm-hmm. of gender roles, of gender norms. Um, and I was, I was curious if you could uh, elaborate on that. And if I'm if I'm wrong, please please let me know. But that that's what it seemed to be is that even though this was a space where a lot of men weren't necessarily always calling the shots. There was still this internal worldview that this complementarian view that sees women as submissive or that sort of thing. So if you could elaborate on that and, um, and I'm, and again, if I'm wrong, I'm please let me know. <laughs> no, you are, you are hundred percent correct. And it is a really fascinating part of like my experience in particular in the way my crew movement operated in the way that Kate operated as well. Um, Because yeah, like my crew movement, like suffered from just this supreme lack of male leadership, as they would have said, because it was like, Kate was running the show after Tara graduated. And even when Tara graduated, she kind of came back. I you know, said in my book, she was like a student lady version of Van Wilder. Like she came back <laughs> onto, onto campus yeah. and she was like a, the staff member. She was the new crew staff member because she mm-hmm. just couldn't stay away. Um, and then, yeah, like, and, and then I had other friends like who were also like women who were, you know, helping like us all run the show. And I remember um, Kate um, saying at one point in time, at one point in time, one of my friends was dating a man from another college campus and he came to one of our Bible studies and just started just insulting the way that we were doing things like because we were women and he would have done it differently and blah, blah, blah. And I remember just, and I said this in my book, I was just so upset that he would ever come in and like, cause granted as messed up as everything with Kate was, Kate knew how to run a fucking Bible study. (laughs) Kate fucking knew how to get in there and just brainwash the hell out of everybody. She was great at it. She was so good at it. Like, you know, and this guy comes in and he's like acting like he could brainwash anybody better. No, he could absolutely not. Like he was awful. Like, and he, he really sucked. Like, I wanted my friend to break up with him that second and she didn't. She ended up marrying him, which is totally bonkers. But anyway, so like <laughs> Kate, you know, and, and and Kate, like he was insulting Kate. And then Kate just not only she didn't take it, but the way that she responded to it all to me is, you know, something he's right. Men should be leading this. Men should be the ones. But I have to do the best with what I have because there are no men to do this. And I remember just being like, what? Like, you know, again, she was so good at what she was doing. The terrible stuff she was doing, she was so good at it. And no dude could have done that any better than her. Like, but in her mind, like she wasn't fit for it. She wasn't, her gender, like did not like call for her to be in that role, but she was doing the best she could with what she had, you know? And I remember like that was sort of like a point of contention in my own mind, just like, you know, like when I talk about that, that, that the onion, the Shrek onion, like, of like what I believed in, like, like at the core of me, that was something that I really struggled with as well. Like was this idea that like women didn't belong in leadership roles or women should only be leaders over other women. They shouldn't be leaders over men. Like women should just be setting up snack tables and teaching children's church and like doing all that stuff and being women's pastors, which is just 
pastors over the women, but they shouldn't be ever teaching or leading men in any way. Like Kate was such a strong force that it really, and, and also I felt like I could be a strong force too. Like, and like, it really just, it, it, it at the center of me, I questioned it. Like, just like I questioned like all the gay stuff, like you know, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Cause I never, the gay stuff, the gay teaching of teachings of evangelicalism anti-LGBTQ stuff did never sat right with me. Did I buy into it reluctantly and begrudgingly? Absolutely. Like I absolutely did because I felt like I needed to, to fit into this mold. Like, was I still bisexual on the inside and did I know it? Yes. And I was terrified of it. And it was the thing that I was most scared of about myself. Like, but like all of those things still sat in the center of me and and I questioned it. Like, Mm -hmm. and like when it came to like women in leadership, like, yeah, like there were a lot of like really, and it, it wasn't just Kate, like there were other crew staff members that were just like incredible speakers, like so, so, so good. And just like, and I remember they were like married to these men who they were supposed to be submitting to in marriage. And we would have these like women's times because in evangelicalism, they do that thing where they're just like, okay, like the men go off into a room and talk about masturbation and pornography or whatever you talk about. Because that's what, <laughs> that's what as women, that's what we thought all the men talked about. We thought they just went off and just talked about like trying not to jerk off. Like, whereas like women, <laughs> we had to like go into a room and we had to be like, you know, okay, well, I need to stop fantasizing about getting married. Like, that's what I need to do. And I was like, I need to stop jerking off too. And everyone was like, no one wants to, no, no one else is struggling with that. (laughs) And and during these women's times, we would have these incredible women like come in and just like, oh my God, just like take over the room. They were so fascinating and they, they were so good at the brainwashing they were doing, but the men they were married to. They would talk about in these women times about how they struggled with submitting to the men they were married to because they were such powerful women, but about how they were still called to do it and they still had to do it. And in that way and in all of the other ways, when they sent us emails telling us to go on these beach trips and cover up for the men and all this stuff, they just perpetuated this like cis white male theology and like they suppressed themselves like, you know in in the name of what they were buying into so mm-hmm. it is it, i agree with you it's endlessly fascinating like yeah looking at yeah like and it is it is really that the gender politics of of evangelicalism is just um it's it's just so constricting for for everyone um it doesn't make space for any sort of expansiveness for any sort of uh deviation from a very sort of at the same mm-hmm. time very prescribed norm but then you know i I actually won't even say it's ambivalent like it is very clear Mm -hmm. for for men and women and the expectations are you know you know like that's why reading somebody like bell hooks is gonna blow some evangelicals mind (laughs) like or former evangelicals mind and that's having just finished reading the will to change like that you know that's (laughs) like that type of that type of gender expectation especially within fundamentalist evangelicalism is so pervasive that that even when the other gender isn't there to enforce it Mm -hmm. um the the the, other the the women are enforcing it yeah and and in male spaces like the the men will enforce it and they they Mm -hmm. are given more power and Mm -hmm. but at the same but they're given more power and seemingly authority but that to to claim that they have to 
sacrifice parts of themselves too. Yeah. It's not, it's not the same. I'm not saying it's the same, mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but that, but the fact that these gender things are so pervasive that even in single gender space, using that, that binary and, and like evangelical norm, mm-hmm. they're still there. And it's, yeah. it's a really fascinating look at, at how these things, how these things actually play out in people's yeah. lives instead of yeah. just talking it about me, it in these abstract yeah. ways. <laughs> yeah. It makes me, it makes me think about like women like Kate and some of those crew staff members, like what they could have been without evangelicalism, like how incredible they would have been <laughs> like with, mm-hmm. without evangelicalism constricting them, like all those like powers, like if they could have used them for good, like, you know, it's like, what would those women have been like? And and it also makes me think of a theory that I remember having in evangelicalism to try to rationalize why women weren't allowed to lead, why women were like kept in these, like, like subjugated essentially. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling Kate one time, I was like, I think I figured it out. I think I figured out why God doesn't want us as women to be leaders. Like, and Kate was like, what's your theory? What's your theory? And I was like, I think it's because we want to be leaders. Like, and maybe men don't. I was like, maybe like God has to subjugate us because we want to like be leaders. And he's like, you don't get what you want. Like, you know, because like you want it too bad and you have to, for me, give up the thing that you want the most. Like, just like Abraham was like asked to sacrifice his son. Like, and maybe for men, they have to give up being like wanting to like sit back and I look at that now and I'm like, that's totally fucked up. That's there's lots of men who want to lead. <laughs> there's yeah. lots of men who very willingly want power and want to grab onto it. But in my mind, I was just trying to understand like sure. why God would do this to me, like why God would do this to my friends, like why it would be like, you know, a viable practice like for us. Um, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the other the other piece that that I felt was was re- that I think a lot of people who've had experience in evangelicalism will find very relatable is um, you were in this very close-knit group in crew for years yeah. and then then you graduate and then it's just then there's then there's a vacuum yeah um, and like there's I, I can't credit where I first heard this but you know, the term holy ghosted, um, Mm -hmm. you know, of like, you know, you had these very vulnerable codependent relationships with a lot of people. And then overnight they, they can disappear. Um, that is sort of expressed in when you move to New York for grad school and your years after that, um, and your, your own experiences, um, with dating and everything else that, that happened in, in that section of your book. Um, what I, what was it about moving to New York, um, and having both that like sort of physical distance and that, that, that lack of proximity that, um, had that made a space for you to feel like you were ready for the things you weren't ready for in college, like, like drugs and, and dating and, and, and addressing, your desire for for companionship and sexuality and and everything else like um was it was it the moving away because the people within evangelicalism see that as a threat right they see mm-hmm. like like you need to be in the community at all times it needs to be yeah. you know in but not of the world um maintain that boundary um so what what was it about that part of your life that started to open 
open your worldview back up out to to a place outside of evangelicalism. Yeah, I think it was allowing myself to finally have friends that did not believe what I believed in terms mm. of evangelicalism. It was and and also like a like Kate, I can't like Kate not being around anymore. And this is like one of the things I owe to her in terms of me getting out getting out of evangelicalism was how terrible she was at keeping in touch. She was awful at it. Like she like <laughs> could not return a phone call or a text message for the life of her. And I am so lucky for that because of the fact that like because she was just so bad at like, you know, at communicating, like when you weren't right in front of her face, like she was, again, the driving force that in many ways kept me inside of it. So when she wasn't there anymore, and then all of a sudden I was allowing myself to make friends with people who were outside of the movement, like, and not just outside of the movement, but also like really interesting and really confident, but also like I, I started to like be interested in people who were questioning the world around them. I started mm -hmm. to be interested in people who weren't so sure about things. Like when I was like, 18, 19, and I met Kate, the fact that she was so sure was really attractive to me because I needed that. But then all of a sudden when I was like, you know, 23, 24, and I was meeting like all of these other people in New York City, the fact that they weren't sure, but were like living anyways, like I found that interesting. So in some ways, maybe it was also like the development of my own brain, like, oh, as, yeah. like you know, somebody yeah. who's like growing up. And in a lot of ways, like I think of my book as a coming of age story. It's a coming of age story with evangelicalism being just thrown into the mix and how that affects like a young person. Because like, like one of the one of the wonderful people who helped edit my book um, at like an earlier stage, Lauren O'Neill, actually, mm -hmm. one of the Sunday things school that dropouts. Shout out. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Lauren O'Neill, I cannot tell you how much I love her. Like she's <laughs> so good and she's such a great editor. But like one of the things she had said, like in the margins when she was editing was she she highlighted something and she goes, this strikes me as something a young person thinks. And I've never <laughs> forgotten that because I'm like, I feel like that's this entire book. This is how a young person thinks. Like mm -hmm. this is how a young person thinks. And then like what happens when you throw a fundamentalist like theology into it? Like mm -hmm. it's like how that affects like, you know, the, the brain of young person. Like and so like as my brain started growing up and started realizing like actually I don't have answers and I'm finding comfort in that like you know and I'm finding it interesting when other people don't have answers too like I think that that started to be kind of what saved me but also like just being in New York and like being around people who just like you know like swore all the time and and also trying to convert them that was the other thing that really like kicked evangelicalism into the bucket for me like was like I was doing what evangelicalism told me to do which was trying to convert everyone around me and it's what they wanted me to do because they wanted especially crew and especially the church that I was in wanted more people like me like they wanted like me to like multiply myself, like essentially, like mm -hmm. they wanted like more like theater majory artistic people to come in and create like evangelical media. Like, and so yeah. Yeah. they were very into me doing this. Did you have <laughs> so, to do a, did you have to do a book study on heart of the artist or anything like that? Oh, oh my God. I remember heart of the artist. They tried to make me do it, but I could never concentrate on it heart was, of the artist. It was a very poorly written book. I, it was, yeah, I did not, bad. I did not connect with it at all, but did they try <laughs> to make me do it? One, 100% of the yeah. way like and did they try to make me write like you know fiction based off of biblical stories 
100% did I want to? No, never, not in a million years. Like, um, and so, yeah, I think that, um, uh, trying to convert these people and like really like delving into their lives, like of my like existentialist grad school friends, like really fucked with my evangelicalism because like, I was like asking them questions and trying to get to know them and trying to like delve into the deepest parts of their hearts. And then I just delving into them made me just question myself more because I realized like they were kind of happy they were kind of okay. Like they were like, sure, they didn't have like any type of certainty and yet they were hot messes, but they were all right. And that like, you know, yeah, seeing that people could be a hot mess, but okay was like, yeah, all of a sudden that just, it blew my mind. <laughs> it, it was, it was really good for me. Right. Yeah. Seeing. Yeah. Yeah. That's always fascinating when you, when you start to see, see that, that like you're supposed to have this freedom in Christ, but these other people, you envy their freedom <laughs> like you envy mm-hmm. their they seem and they seem comfortable in themselves in a way that i think evangelicalism always wants wants you to battle yourself mm-hmm. you know and um i that's that's definitely like whenever you see someone at ease in themselves outside of evangelicalism that yeah that's gonna make you pay attention yeah you know so yeah um your it, it, and there's lots of parts of your book that we haven't touched on. There's some really, um, you you talk about your family dynamics, which we we haven't really gone into at all. Um, some really wonderful things there. But just to close out the short conversation that we're having now, you, um, it seemed like there, like the your years outside of crew, this period of of like seeing other people getting to know them outside of just strictly evangelical spaces. It led to a point where, where you one day just sort of, you decided that you like, like this was, this is not for me anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. So did it, what did it feel that, um, that decisive that um, like you just, you made a singular choice one day after, after ruminating on it for a while, that this is no longer, no longer serving me and I'm not going to serve it. Yeah. Yeah. It honestly, it felt like the way that I've always, I can't describe it any other way other than it felt like I was waking up from a dream. Like it was Mm. just like, just as slowly as they had converted me over the course of a year, I slowly was deconverting like over the course of, I would say about two years. Like it was just like the layer upon layer upon layer. I was just coming up out of it and just realizing like more and more, like this is not real and this is not real and this is not real. And also I don't feel this way anymore, this way anymore, this way anymore. Like it just was like, I was like coming to like back to myself into like another state of consciousness. And I sort of like, met myself who I was before I entered evangelicalism on the other side. And I was able to like hold a hand out to her and be like, I know you're scared. I know you're terrified about being an adult. I know that you're afraid that you can't do this and that you can't do this safely, but I think I know how we can do it together now. Like, I Mm -hmm. think I know how we can be safe in this world now. Like, and I don't think that we need this anymore. In fact, I think it's hurting us really, really badly. Like, and I don't think we can live this way anymore. And in fact, I think that if we do continue trying to live this way, we will really not be safe. Like we're not safe here. Like, and we need to get out of this. Like, and yeah. And it was like, all of a sudden, I think 
for seven years, for the seven years I was inside of the movement, I felt like I didn't have a choice and I had to stay because this was real and this was reality. And this was the only way I was going to have that safe adulthood. And then all of a sudden, one day, as I woke up out of that dream and met myself on the other side, it was, it was a split second when I realized I had a choice and I didn't have to do this anymore. Like that this was a choice, <laughs> like that this was like, it wasn't something that had taken over me. There was no spirit inside of me. There was no Calvinism keeping me inside of it. There, there, there was nothing like I was choosing and I could choose differently and that was okay. And it was okay to start over again. Mm-hmm. Not going to say it was an easy decision. It was a really tough one. Like after giving myself to this for seven years and after like humiliating myself in front of people and like literally just like living my life as if this was the truest thing ever and ostracizing people around me, like that was a big decision. And all the people that I had gained and all of the friends I had made and all like the entire community I would have to leave behind. Like it was awful. Like it was awful. I I don't wish it upon anyone like Mm -hmm. to leave evangelicalism. It's terrible. It's a terrible experience and it's a very isolating experience. And it's the antithesis of everything that you experience inside of it, like in those ways, like, um, but yeah, it was like one day I just realized I had a choice, like, and it Mm -hmm. was the best decision I've ever made. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you decided to re- visit this period of your life. Um, I think it's, it's great that, that you've decided to, to share this, um, because it's, it's vulnerable stuff. Um, I'm, I, what, what was it that this, and this is really, I think will be our, our closing question. Um, despite all this time out and sort of reestablishing and re-meeting yourself after, after this period within evangelicalism, what, what made you want to, revisit this time and share it so publicly through a book that um will have a will have its own its own lifespan you know now now it's an you know it's an it's an it's an artifact it's a it's a in, in its own way it's a testimony to your experience right mm-hmm. um i love that you said that i love that, <laughs> that question oh god it's like yeah it's almost as if i claimed my testimony again which is like for so long i was like being forced to go out and give my testimony of evangelicalism to people but being able to do this was just like it was like i got to claim my testimony again so that was probably one reason why i did it mm-hmm. but one of the other reasons was so yeah it was a reclamation but like one of the other reasons why i did it was that I felt like no one was talking about evangelicalism in the way that it needs to be talked about, at least like not on like a grander sphere. Like we've had like our group that's been talking about it, right? Like, and that's like, and everything that we've been doing is really important. But what I see media at large focusing on is the little teeny tiny cults that come as offshoots of evangelicalism. We've got like, you know, like the the way down, like HBO series. You've got like, you know, the Gwen Shamblins of the world. You've got like the Fred Phelps, the Westboro Baptist Churchers. Like you've got like all of these like smaller, like evangelical offshoots. And they're like, look at the cults. Oh my God, look at the weird little cults. But nobody's talking about like the framework of evangelicalism that creates these cults. And that is really like, not a cult because it's too large and too expansive, but is in so many ways, like has all of those properties, like this high control group. And I felt like I've got to talk about the big, the big cojone, like, <laughs> like the main guy here, like, it's like, and like, you know, not enough people are talking about it. So I'm going to throw my story into the ring. And mm-hmm. also I wanted to talk about this vulnerable, these vulnerable college years, because I felt like not just again, what we were talking about, 
earlier with like the idea of like, you know, nobody understanding like the difference between regular Christianity and fundamentalism, but also nobody understanding that like there are bigger things threatening like young, vulnerable college students like than fraternities and sororities. Like everyone's like, watch out for those girls who are going to try to make you jump off a bridge for entrance into their social circle. Watch out for those boys that are going to try to get everyone drunk and do all this stuff. Like everybody's like, you know, those college years, people are warning you about the wrong stuff. Like they're not (laughs) warning you about like, watch out for the psychologically manipulative people that are going to like, try to like get you into their high control group. Like, it's like, no one's like, you know, it's like talking about those years are so vulnerable and people are trying to find themselves that, and there are so many different forces when you get onto a college campus that are going to try to draw your attention and draw your loyalty. Like, Mm -hmm. and people are talking about a bunch of those other things, but no one's talking about this one. Mm -hmm. Like, and so like, I, I wanted to give it some color. Like yeah. the, the idea, the name Campus Crusade for Christ or the Navigators or InterVarsity, I'll say them all. Like all of those names are not known enough. Like they're just these like weird little groups that like people sometimes have like, you know, tangential relationships within college but they're actually really insidious and really dangerous and they're just they're large organizations that are sort of rooted in our culture and are doing yeah. nasty things and I want more people to know about them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, a fantastic entry in, into that space and uh, revealing, um, revealing just how how these these things work and the impact it had on your life and the life of your family and so many other people. Um, so I'm, I was very pleased to read it. Really enjoyed being able to talk to you a, a bit about it, and I just to build on. I, I do think like even though you know a lot of us have started talking about distancing ourselves from particular types of religion um there is still a little a little bit of shame that we internalize and and keep to ourselves that like we shouldn't be proud of this growth that we've had Mm -hmm. um because we've like deconverted and that still has like a a negative connotation but i think books like yours help you know ameliorate that and like and speak to that um (laughs) and be like no you should be proud of these things you changed and you you know you know better now and yeah. you're and you you're, you're paying it forward. <laughs> yeah, you're paying it forward and you did a yeah. brave thing. There is life on the other side of evangelicalism and it's a good life like yeah. and at the same time like it's okay to start over. Yep. It's okay. Like it's yeah. really hard, but it's really good. Like yeah. and it's the bravest thing you can do. Get, like really like staying in this toxic faith system, like they want to convince you that being in it is brave, but really like getting out of it like is a very brave thing to do and like you should be proud of yourself for it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, the book is God's Ex-Girlfriend: A Memoir About Loving and Leaving the Evangelical Jesus. Beth, thank you very much for joining me to talk about it. Was there anything else you wanted to mention here to plug? Oh, I have talked about so much. I talked <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you so much for having me. I'm so I, I I love Exvangelical. I've been a big fan for a long time. This podcast is one of the things that helped one of the things that helped me come out of it and like realizing that there is community. And so thank you for creating it. Thank you very much. And thank you for talking today. Of course. That'll do it for today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. This episode was produced by me, Blake Chastain. You can find all my other writing and podcasting over at postevangelicalpost.com. And you can support the show for just $5 a month or subscribe for free over at postevangelicalpost.com slash support.